Our text for today is John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. And this is the word of Almighty God, Jesus speaking to us. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." Pray together. Lord, there's so much here. Help us to get there, to get there clearly, and to again further and further surrender ourselves to you, resting in grace, bearing fruit by your power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Are you guys willing to have a sermon with no actual introduction? It would bless my heart if you would be, because I have nothing clever to tell you. For two chapters now, we've been watching this conversation between Jesus and the disciples in the upper room. It's the night he was betrayed. Christ has so far washed his disciples' feet, instituted the Lord's Supper, predicted Judas's betrayal, Jesus has comforted the fearful disciples. He has promised the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's hinted at the inspiration of the New Testament and pointed to the fact that he would be exalted when he, alive, would return to heaven with his Father. But this is so great. At the end of 14, the Savior said, Rise, let us go from here. It's kind of funny because people who study this say, Oh, John's a bad writer. John's a bad, bad writer. Jesus said, rise, let us go at the end of 14. But they don't leave until 18. John messed up the organization of the book. Quick poll. How many of you think John messed up the organization of the book? Not going to take that? Here's the thing. There is no sign of Jesus and the disciples getting up and moving until chapter 18. Is it impossible that they didn't move for like three more chapters? Well, let me ask you this question real quick. Let's just pretend that you're hanging out at somebody's house, a friend's house. If you're a parent with children, this will even make more sense to you. (laughs) Have you ever been at somebody's house and said, okay, we got to go? And then been at that house an hour later. Is that impossible? Then John didn't mess up the writing of this book. 
Or if you really, really, really must have them get up and leave the moment Jesus said, now let us leave this place, then you can say that chapters 15, 16, and 17 happen while they're walking through Jerusalem. Maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus saw the grapevines decorating the temple, and that's what sparks the illustration that we study today. Well, whether we're still in the upper room or whether we're walking the nighttime streets of Jerusalem, let's join the Savior. We're going to find five points as Jesus says to us, I am the true vine. So let's get going. Point number one, center all on Jesus. This is the majority of the sermon. Center all on Jesus. Verses one and two, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, good teachers use figures of speech. You read the Gospels and you're going to see Jesus use sarcasm, allegory, parables, hyperbole. Here, as you get the seventh major I am statement in John, Jesus uses a pretty simple metaphor to depict for us who he is, who the Father is, and how the Father responds to the two different groups that exist in humanity. Already through John's gospel, Jesus has called himself the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. And now the seventh I am statement, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, we're going to talk about Jesus being the true vine, but let's actually look at what we see Jesus say about others first. If Jesus is the true vine, the father is the vine dresser, the gardener. The father is tending the work of Jesus. The father is overseeing, bringing the work of Jesus to pass. Verse two, there are two kinds of people in this metaphor because there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who do not bear fruit and those who do. The ones who are fruitless, the father will take them away. A good gardener will not let a dead branch cling to the vine and do damage, right? He'll cut it off, he'll throw it away. But the branches that bear fruit, they're going to be pruned by the Father, shaped and clipped and moved and grown, maybe tied in the right spot so they can bear even more fruit. And as we go through the rest of the passage today, all those characters are going to show up. The fruitful branches are verses 3 and 5. The fruitless, unfruitful branches, verse 6. And we see the Father being glorified in verses 7 and 8. But since we're going to see the fruitful, the fruitless, and the Father coming up, that just hit me that that's alliterated. I didn't know that. We're going to see that in the verses to come. Let's focus on one part of this picture in this section today. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, you guys understand, don't you, that's a metaphor? Jesus does not tell us he's growing from the ground and Jesus has not sprouted leaves. But something about the picture of a vine is important. Now, here's where we pause the general sermonic flow. 
we're going to do theology again. Are you guys okay with it? Okay, well, let me talk to you. I want you to think here about where do you see vines in a metaphor used in the Bible? If you were the disciples in the upper room, you know your Old Testament very well. That was the Bible you had. Do we ever see vines or a vine or a vineyard as a metaphorical teaching for the fruitful and the fruitless in the Old Testament? Psalm 80, verses 8 to 12. Listen to the word of God. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Or try this one on for size, Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7. God says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard. On a very fertile hill, he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, bitter, yucky, nasty grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my for was there, sorry, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold an outcry. Or Jeremiah 2.21. Yet I planted you a choice vine, Holy, of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? There are many more passages like these I could read for you in the Old Testament. God regularly in the Old Testament speaks of the nation of Israel as a vine. It's a vine that God carefully planted, that God tended, but which did not bear fruit. When God allowed Israel to go into exile for their sins, he spoke of it as allowing the wild beast to trample the vine. When God cast his own judgment down on his people for their rebellion, he speaks of it like burning fruitless branches. Now, pause again. We've got to go further back. If we can say, that in the Old Testament, Israel is the vine. You guys, does anyone want to argue about that? Or you feel good with that, that that makes sense? That made sense, right? Israel's the vine. They didn't bear fruit. You've got to ask this question. What in the world is Israel? If you don't know that, this doesn't make sense. And where we're going won't make sense. What is Israel? 
Well, remember your Bible from the beginning. In fact, remember your Bible from before the beginning because before the beginning, before there was time, God planned that God would rescue a people for himself. After mankind fell in the garden, God then promised a savior is going to come. And eventually God chose a man, Abram, and he entered into a covenant relationship with Abram. The covenant that God made with Abram has two sides to it. I've heard people argue that there may be two covenants, but I will say it's a covenant with two sides, two pieces or parts to it. On the one hand, the covenant with Abram is a covenant based on works. Did you know that? It's a covenant based on good works. If Abram and his descendants will obey the commands of God, they will receive from God blessing, offspring, land, and dominion. But those who will not obey, for example, those who would not circumcise their children in the old covenant, they will be cut off from their people. Blessing for doing what you're told, cutting off for not. That's works, folks. But on the other hand, God made a completely gracious promise to Abram. No matter what, God will bring into the world through Abram's family line, the promised one, a singular person, the anointed one, the Messiah who would bring God's blessing upon people from all the nations of the earth. And even if Abram and his descendants proved to be rebellious, God said, I'm always going to keep enough of you alive and keep enough of you faithful so that I can bring the Savior through the nation just as I promised. Now, when Abram's offspring stopped being just the family of Abraham but actually turned into the physical nation of Israel, God entered into a covenant with them as a nation at Mount Sinai under the leadership of Moses. All that language about God bringing a vine up out of Egypt and planting it in a good land is referencing God bringing Israel up out of Egypt and planting them in the promised land. And the covenant agreement that God made with Israel, again, is very law, very worksy. Obey and live, obey and be blessed, disobey and die, disobey and be cursed. But still set inside that law is the promise of, being carried forward of a covenant of grace to be fulfilled in the person of God's promised Savior. God said, obey, dear nation, so I don't have to judge you. Obey, dear nation, because I will bring the Savior through you. Israel is the nation that carries that promise and is under that covenant. And inside Israel is what Romans calls the true Israel of God. The actually saved faithful inside the nation. Because not all the nation was faithful and not all the nation was saved. With me so far? All that background matters. Hear the words of Jesus now. Think about this and see if this rings a bell all of a sudden. Jesus looks at you and says, I am the true vine. 
Do you see some weight here that maybe you didn't see before? D.A. Carson says this, Most remarkable is the fact that whenever historic Israel is referred to under this figure, it's the vine's failure to produce good fruit that is emphasized along with the corresponding threat of God's judgment on the nation. Now, in contrast to such failure, Jesus claims, I am the true vine. In essence, the one to whom Israel pointed, the one that brings forth good fruit. Jesus has already in principle superseded the temple, the Jewish feasts, Moses, various holy sites. Here, he supersedes Israel as the very locus of the people of God. In the Old Testament, to be part of the family of God, you had to be part of the of the nation of Israel. You had to come and get under those laws. Even though you were saved by grace through faith, if you were saved, you had to get into Israel. But the vine language in the Old Testament tells us that national Israel never ever lived up to its commitments. Israel as a nation was not faithful. There was a faithful remnant of believing people inside Israel who were actually saved, but the nation as a whole did not keep their side of the bargain. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, he lets us know that he has succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the reality to which Israel as a nation pointed. If you want to know God, you have to be in Jesus, in relationship with Jesus. Now, you might say to me, Travis, that's a pretty big grab you're making. So let's ask the question, do the gospel writers present Jesus as the fulfillment of the foil to Israel, the true Israel, the antitype of which Israel's a type, if you will? Use whatever words you want. I'm not trying to make a, a, I'm not scheming at you here. Is Jesus the one to whom Israel points, at least? Well, think about five things that happen in Exodus. Israel is in Egypt, right? He was threatened by a king who wanted to slaughter the children. Remember that? God led Israel out and back into their land. There was a miracle in the water as God parted the sea and led the people across visibly. You could see God at the water. There were 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, including moral failing connected to food. That might have been six things. All those things make sense? Now just think with me about Matthew chapters 2 through 4. Jesus as a child is carried by his parents where? To Egypt. Why did he have to go to Egypt? Because they were escaping an evil king who was slaughtering innocent children. God brought Jesus back out of Egypt into the promised land. At Jesus' baptism at the beginning of his ministry in Matthew 3, we see a miracle in the water as the presence of God visibly descends upon the Savior. Then Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness facing temptation from the devil, including a temptation based on food. Do you see some parallels? 
The difference, of course, is this. Jesus perfectly succeeded where national Israel failed. In the gospel according to John, if you were just limiting us there, John has spent a lot of time showing us that Jesus is greater than the old covenant. He's greater than the system Israel was under. When Jesus turned the water into wine in chapter 2 using ceremonial water jars, he was hinting at, at the fact that something greater, bigger, better than the old system was on the way. In fact, it had arrived. When Jesus cleansed the temple in John chapter 2 and told the Jews, you destroyed this temple, I will build it in three days. I'll raise it up in three days. Jesus was telling them, though they didn't understand, that his own body is the replacement for the temple and the temple system. From chapters 5 through 10, you see Jesus repeatedly contrasted with and superior to the Jewish festivals. You even see Jesus as the God to whom the festivals point. When Jesus says, I'm the true vine, he's letting us know he is the true Israel of God. And the true Israel of God is only those who are connected to him. He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He's the one to whom you must be connected if you want life in God. He's the one who accomplishes all the things that God has promised. He's the one who is the focus and the purpose of all of God's promises. Physical national Israel contained inside of it a remnant of true believers. But Jesus is the actual true Israel who saves all believers Old Testament and New. Now, for clarity's sake, for some of you nerds, I am not proposing here what is sometimes called replacement theology. I'm not saying, oh, look, the church just replaced Israel. The church in Christ, including Gentiles, is grafted into the tree, which is the true Israel of God, as Paul tells us in Romans. I will tell you that digging into that can of worms is way further than we need to try to go to this morning. So, let's just pause for a second now that we're done pausing. I don't, was that fun or did I just kill you? Make sure we're all right. All right. Now, you say, for some of you, you're going, okay, Israel, what? Let me remind you of the point. What's the point here? Center all on Jesus. Jesus is at the center of all of God's plans and all of God's promises. If you want to know God, you've got to know Jesus. If you want your life to reach its purpose, center it on Jesus. If you want to understand the Bible, read it centered on Jesus. Because even something as significant as the nation of Israel is foreshadowing and bringing Jesus. If Jesus is the true vine, then everything we are and everything we do is about Jesus. Let's see that as we go forward in the passage. Point number two. What's a good simple point for the gospel according to John? Any kids have any idea what the next point ought to be? 
Okay, let's make point two, believe in Jesus. Look at verse three. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now remember way back here at the beginning, Jesus is like, there's two kinds of branches, the fruitless, the fruitful, and the fruitless are getting burned. With all that talk, the disciples might have wondered if Jesus was threatening them to cut them off and throw them away. But that's not what the Savior was up to. Instead, Jesus is giving these guys assurances. If you're connected to him, you're going to be the fruitful branches. And Jesus tells the disciples, hey, you guys are already clean. Back in chapter 13, Jesus told Peter, you guys are all clean except for the one of you who's going to betray me. Now Jesus says, you've been made clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. What's Jesus telling the disciples here? Y'all don't have to be afraid that I'm saying you're not in the vine. You're clean. You're connected. Well, how did the disciples become connected to the vine? How did they become connected to Jesus, the true vine? How were they made part? They did this by the grace of God through faith. Jesus says they're clean because of what? Look at verse three and tell me, what's the reason that they're made clean? It's because of the word Jesus has spoken to them. Jesus told the disciples a while ago, he told them who he is. He told them his mission. And by this point, though their doctrine is not completely worked out, they do believe. Stop here and see. The way for you to be made clean by God is for you to believe the words of Jesus. Even more simply put, believe in Jesus. You want life? You want forgiveness? You want God to make you clean from the sin that you've committed? Believe in Jesus. What do you need to believe? Believe that God is holy and perfect and that you've been a rebel. That's true of all of us, so you don't have to, you don't have to sweat that as if, oh my gosh, I've just said something bad about you. Anybody here not ever been a rebel? That's it, right? Believe that the only way for you to be forgiven is through the person and work of Jesus. Believe that Jesus is God the Son who lived, died, and rose from the grave. He's alive now, and he did that to save your very soul. Surrender to him. Ask him in faith, Jesus, please forgive me. Please save me. I rest my hope on you. Because God says everyone who comes to him in genuine faith, Jesus in genuine faith, will be saved, will be forgiven, will be adopted into the family of God. I urge you, if you've never done so, if you've never let go, if you've never trusted, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Third point today, three fingers. Third point, abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. Verses four and five. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the true vine. The disciples will not find life and they will not find growth if they attempt to let go of Jesus and 
go back to the old covenant ways of the temple, to the sacrificial system. There's no life there anymore. If you want to bear fruit, you've got to stay connected to the Savior, to the vine. And Jesus has told his disciples, you guys are clean because of my word. You're saved by grace through faith. Now Jesus can start talking to them about how do you live fruitfully? How do you live joyfully now that you've been saved? Because let me ask you, most of you here, if you're here on a Sunday morning in Vegas, you're probably saved. Because why would lost people come hang out with us? I mean, I think we're cool, but I'm the only one. So if you're saved, don't you want to be fruitful as a Christian? Don't you want more fruit? All right, then you should pay attention to this. Once you're saved, how do you bear fruit? And the word Jesus uses for bearing fruit, for living joyfully once you know him, is the word abide. If you want to live the lives of the good branches that bear fruit, you've got to continue to abide in Christ. John uses the word abide all throughout this gospel. And in very simple terms, the word abide means to remain, to stay, maybe to make your home somewhere. It means you live here, you don't leave here. Now, sometimes John uses abide for staying in a place overnight. Remember, John the Baptist is hanging out and sends disciples to follow Jesus and they said, Lord, where are you staying? They use the word abide. Where where, where are you going to tonight? We want to hang out with you. But other times the word abide does mean stay somewhere forever. If Jesus is the vine, we as branches connected to the vine want to remain in contact because no branch can bear fruit if it lets go of the vine and tries to go about fruit bearing on its own. Doesn't that sound stupid just to think about? Little branch just pops off and goes, I'm going to make my own fruit. We've got to love the fact, by the way, Jesus, he doesn't just stick with the metaphor here. He goes beyond just vines and grapes. Jesus says, look, you abide in me, I abide in you. Don't you love that? When you connect to Jesus for life and salvation, Jesus lives within you by his spirit. As we rest in, as we rely on Jesus for life, Jesus is going to be right here with you to give you his life. Now, let's be absolutely clear. You do not bear fruit to become connected to the vine. That's backwards. You do not do good things so that you can be made into a child of God. You become God's child when you rest in and trust in the grace of Christ. Then once you know Jesus, you will desire to have a fruitful life. Life. What is that fruit, by the way? The fruit we're to bear is the fruit of faithfulness. Galatians would tell you that the fruit of the Spirit of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right? Did any of you grow up in a Sunday school era where you learned the song, The Fruit of the Spirit's Not a Coconut? Anybody? Thank you. Okay, I feel better. If that's in your head now, bless your heart. That's a gift from me. (laughs) 
bottom line is, fruit, fruit's not about, oh, look how successful I am. Look at the big ministry I've built. Fruit is about loving God and loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about growing in your faith. It's about sharing the gospel with the lost. It's about living out what God has made you to be. For many a Christian, by the way, let's be honest again. You can talk with me for a second. I feel like I've lost all sense of propriety at this point. Do lists like the fruit of the Spirit encourage you or do they sometimes hurt? If I tell you, the fruit of the Spirit, if you're a fruit bearer, you better bear some fruit, you branch. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, righteous living, all the stuff. Do you feel, whew, that's great, or do you feel, ooh? And if you feel that little tinge of guilt, I'm not as fruitful as I ought to be. Yeah. None of us bear as much fruit as we want. None of us would look at God and say, God, I know you're holy, but look at my life and see how good I am. So let me give you some good news right here. Listen to this, please. No branch in any vine bears fruit by the branch's effort. In fact, producing fruit is not your job if you're a branch. It is the responsibility of the vine to produce the fruit. The branch's job is to be connected to the vine so that the vine can push whatever needs to go through to make the fruit happen. Simply put, Jesus bears fruit through you. As you rest in and love Jesus, his fruit will come through you. You see how that changes the burden? What's what's your job? Cling to Jesus. The alternative side of this is that if we live disconnected from the Lord, our fruitfulness will fade When you try to do things by your own power or for your own glory, you will find yourself fruitless, drained, and discouraged. Jesus did say, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So Christian, don't read these verses, don't hear my sermon here, as a call for you to put forth effort, buckle down, and start bearing fruit, doggone it. Instead, hear these verses as a loving call from your Savior to center all on Christ. Rearrange your life so that your all is focused on loving Jesus, knowing Jesus, worshiping Jesus, resting in Jesus, abiding in Jesus, because fruit comes when you love Jesus, not because you're strong. Now, what's it look like to abide, to make your home in Jesus? It starts with saving faith. We saw that in verse 3. But it continues with day by day, moment by moment, reliance on resting in Christ and his finished 
work. Abiding involves participation in spiritual disciplines, yes. Scripture reading, prayer, fellowship, worship, evangelism, yeah, that helps you to abide in Christ. The means of grace like Lord's Supper, gathered worship, Christian encouragement, accountability, prayer, sitting under the preached word, doing the prayer meeting stuff that we're going to be doing here in a couple of weeks. Those things are help, they're good for your soul and they help you abide. But as I wrap up this call to abide in Christ, I've got to say this again. Abiding is resting and remaining. Abiding has far more to do with the focus of your heart and your mind than it has to do with you, your effort. Look to Jesus, love him, remember him, and not just during church and not just during prayer time. Some of you may only think about Jesus and may only pray when someone says, let us pray. That's not abiding. Cling to Jesus as to the air you breathe. Stay close to Jesus like you would stay close to water in the desert. Make everything you are about the Savior who rescued you and you will see your life change. You will see fruit that comes out of your life by the power and the work of the Savior. Yes, we are his workmanship, created for good works. Paul says that in Ephesians 2.10. But those good works, for them to be valid good works, to be God-honoring good works, They've got to be the fruit of your connection to Christ, not some act of your own self-righteous effort. So start with your heart. Is your heart abiding in Christ? Is your soul nourished by grace? Do you swim in the kindness and the love of the Lord? If so, then your life will inevitably be marked by things that come out of you, things that magnify the Lord, things that bless others in the church, things that God calls fruit. You might say, now Travis, are you saying, oh, just be passive. Let go and let God. It doesn't matter if I bear fruit or not. That is not what I'm saying. In fact, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that fruitlessness is not an option. Look at point number four. I'm going to call this believe in the judgment of God. Believe in the judgment of God. Verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. That should make your ears perk up. Now, let me remind you from what we've already seen all through this gospel, Jesus is, he's clear. No true believer can lose salvation that he or she has. You get that, right? If you know Jesus, you will stay with Jesus. You may have bad seasons, but you will never ever fall away and remain away. So this verse is not about a true believer, a true branch somehow failing to bear fruit and being cut off because, uh uh-oh, you didn't bear enough. Remembering that Jesus is the vine, the true vine, the vine that Israel failed to be, we can understand that the people that think that they're going to be part of God's people but who have no relationship with Jesus, they're going to be dead branches. 
you read Galatians, you read Hebrews, you understand that there is no salvation for anybody apart from Jesus. But you can add in the fact that people whose lives show no love for God, people whose lives show no hunger for the word, no interest in the church, no willingness to repent of sin, these are branches that are not connected to the vine. They're dead. And they will be cut down, bundled up, and burned. Jesus is showing us here that the judgment of his father is a very real thing. In verse 2, he said fruitless branches are taken away. Here in verse 6, he says they're burned. All who refuse the grace of God in Jesus Christ will face the true judgment of God, and that judgment is terrifying. It's the judgment rightly earned by any person who's committed an offense against a God of infinite perfection. It's an infinite punishment, the just penalty for sin. So believe in the judgment of God. Let it cause you to run to Jesus for mercy if you don't yet know Jesus. And if you do know Jesus, let the judgment of God call you to thank him for grace and to glorify him out of gratitude for what he's done for you. And then point five, glorify God in Jesus. Look at seven and eight. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And this last, and I'm gonna make this brief, We see Jesus point to the father, the gardener, the vine dresser. There's a way that you and I, Christians, can be a part of God the Son glorifying God the Father, which is, by the way, the very reason God made you in the first place, that you could be a part of God the Son glorifying God the Father. It's your life purpose. As verse 7 opens, Jesus is clear again. He's talking about the people who are Branches that are connected to the vine. We abide in Jesus. The only emphasis change in verse 7 is the fact that when you abide in Jesus, the words of Jesus abide in you. If you love Jesus, you love Jesus' word. If you love Jesus, you will learn to love the Holy Scriptures. You don't like the Bible, you don't like Jesus. And if you abide in Jesus, if you love God's word, you're going to be able to ask God for what you desire in prayer, and it's going to be done. Jesus said something almost identical to this in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Back in 14, he said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, That's not Jesus giving you a blank check to pray for any old thing and promising that you can have it so long as you use his name. There are Dallas Cowboy fans who have used the name of Jesus hoping for Dak Prescott to become something he's not. I heard some amens there. The point here is that as you love God more, your heart's desire will more reflect the ways and the plan of God 
The more you abide in Jesus, the more you love his word. The more your heart is shaped to honor the Lord, the more your prayers are going to be prayers in accord with the will of God. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. As you delight in the Lord, your heart will change to want him and his glory more. The more your delight is in the Lord, the more your prayers will be for what most glorifies the Lord. The more your prayers are for what most glorifies the Lord, the more you will find your prayers answered in Jesus. Glorify God, therefore, in Jesus. Once you know Jesus, love him, bear fruit. And in bearing fruit, you will show that you are his disciples. And in being a true disciple of Jesus, you bring honor to God the Father through the gracious work of God the Son in your life. Remember, dear friends, the bottom line reason for you to exist is for the glory of God. And when you glorify God, your heart gets the joy of being what you were created to be. So what we're talking about here today is God's plan that will result in your highest joy. It involves believing in Jesus, abiding in Jesus, believing in God's judgment and glorifying the Father. But you know what it's all about, most of all? If you want joy, it involves you centering your life yourself, you're all on Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Make your home in Jesus. Abiding in Christ is the way, the only way for you to have true life and true joy. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for your word I thank you for teaching us how we can have life and joy abiding in Christ. Now, Lord, help us to do so. Help us to abide. Help us to rest. Help us to say that everything is about Jesus. And God, for anyone here who doesn't know you, help them run to Jesus for life. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen.